part of the premise of this show, and we'll just get started with this, is kind of understanding a little bit of how you got to where you are today in terms of what was your inner journey like? So if there is any particular insight or moment of kind of clarity or awareness you had, like some thought that hit you along your path to trying to become, you know, a successful author and scientist, what was that that sort of hit in and opened for you that made you realize that that was a possible path for you? Well, this is not going to sound especially Zen or centered or anything. Uh, but when I was a kid, just in terms of background, I've, I've sort of spent my adult life uh, oscillating between being like a dead white male lab neuroscientist and doing stuff to neurons um, and then spending 33 summers uh, studying wild baboons in the National Park in East Africa, um, which was really my first love when I was eight or so. Um, New York City, Museum of Natural History, um, and I could just as easily have stumbled in there and imprinted on like geckos or horseshoe crabs or something. But my mother took me into the primate wing and there was this uh, <laughs> stuffed mountain gorilla in this display. And looking at him, um, it struck me that I would really love to live inside that diorama, um, <laughs> which is pretty much what I then set out to do. And when I was 20, I was sort of shipped off to my first field work and it was sort of a central part of my life for decades. That's amazing. What was it about that exhibit that grabbed you so much? Um, well, let's see. I, um, I had older immigrant parents, a big intergenerational gap. I had never met my grandfathers. They had died 60 years before or whatever. And this gorilla struck me that it would make a pretty good surrogate for a grandfather. Uh. All, all, I, all I wanted to do was sort of like break through the glass of the diorama and kind of hug him and then settle <laughs> down next to him there. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I've had a similar experience with that. Like, there is a strange... Almost, I mean, I, I know who I'm talking to here. I want to call it an ancestral connection, you know, where this, this is a, just a few years ago, I was at a, at a zoo with my, my niece and I was looking at these orangutans and they were walking around. I was reading this little thing about it, said that they're kind of not super social all the time. They like to kind of keep to themselves um, they're very slow and low key creatures. And first off, just reading that, I was like, well, I totally identify, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you looking at them, there's, there's really this bizarre connection that I felt in terms of like, wow, this feels like, like you said, it, it does feel like a grandparent, but of, you know, millions of years ago or something. But the odd thing about it is like, you look at a, you know, at a, you know, uh, a whale or something You're like, wow, that's an amazing creature. Obviously you understand you know, the, the historical importance and the evolutionary qualities of that creature, but there's something like 
you get only where you talk to a person where you're sort of recognizing yourself, that feeling that I got with those, uh, those orangutans. And so, yes, I, I told totally know what you mean. It's very fascinating. It's, it's wild. Every, every time I've sort of made eye contact with a, a non-human ape, you, you just get this irrational desire to like apologize for something or or confess to something just just as we're looking at you it's it's pretty uh unsettling yeah cool uh, cool relatives yeah no doubt um it, it is interesting is that they're they don't have as far as my understanding the same complexity of understanding identity let's call it in the same way that people do you know well, there it's it's the usual song and dance, which is like generations of anthropologists went to their graves saying we are the only species that does this and can do that and capable of whatever. And then, of course, that turns out not to be the case. And everything is on a continuum between us and other species. Um, they've got rudiments of a theory of mind, being able to know that somebody else is having different thoughts or feelings than they do. Uh, they cer certainly have self-awareness. They've got a sense of self. They, they look in a mirror and you can prove experimentally uh, a chimp knows that's me. That's not mm -hmm. another chimp. And they, they behave accordingly. Um, they've got wonderful studies showing like they even have rudiments of a belief in free will, which fascinates me. Um, studies showing where when there's a task that either they could do, this is like a captive chimp, um, they could do some task and get a reward or the human there with them could do the same task and get a reward. And, and as engineered in the experiment, um, the human's totally incompetent at it. They simply can't do it very well. And then you give the chimp an option, either they can do the task or the human could do it for them in the hopes of like getting this reward. And the chimps always want to do it themselves. But if the other, if the human is way better at it than them, um, they choose the human. In other words, the chimp can sit there and show not only there is a me and there is a me doing this task, but I happen to be pretty lousy when I choose to do it. So let's choose to have the human do it instead um, wow. in a context dependent way. Yeah, pretty. It's, it's an identical economic task is something that's done with humans and it's the same profile of response. So, yeah, they're not us, um, but they sure have a lot in common. And you'd be hard pressed to come up with a hard and fast rule as to where we end and they start. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like they can delegate, which is a very human, you know, a very human quality. Yes. Or, or dump responsibility on if you happen to be a high ranking whoever and taking advantage of that. Yeah. That's a much better way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, what are like some of the experiences you've had with them that have, let me, I mean, I want to say just freaked you out the most, but I was trying to think of a more elegant way to say that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like that, that's given you like the, the deepest, most reflective sort of feeling whenever you're uh, engaging with them. Well, the the uh, the get the goosebumps moments um, for for a bunch of reasons. Scientifically, I wound up 
studying baboons rather than the the mountain gorillas who I had my heart set on since childhood. But, you know, we all can't go live with mountain gorillas. Sometimes we've got to go live with baboons. Um, there were not a whole lot of goose flesh. Oh, my God. Like at, at one with the universe moments with baboons, because they're basically like these skeevy backstabbing untrustworthy bastards there's very little that's enlightened about them um what what i study both in my lab and in the field um is sort of the the biology of stress um and in the lab what stress does to your brain does rotten things to neurons here to neurons there all of that um and in the field we're trying to understand uh what did your social rank and your patterns of social affiliation among these baboons have to do with who's got the elevated blood pressure, who's got the rotten cholesterol levels and all of that. Why study this in baboons? Because they're incredible jerks. They live in these like large socially complex groups of 50 to 100 animals or so. Um, and unlike your normal like beasts out in nature bloody in tooth and claw um nobody messes with baboons much they're they're these big two or three baboons could take on a lion um their kids have a higher chance of surviving than among the human pastoralists living near there and probably the most important thing is this is out in the the serengeti plains which is fabulous ecosystem if you're a baboon you only have to spend three hours a day foraging and what that means is like westernized humans, you've got about nine hours of free time every day to devote to being socially crappy to some other baboon. All they do, they're not like gazelle running away from lions where that's what stress count says. All that life is about for them is generating social stress and hassling each other and jockeying and backroom manipulations of coalitions. All they do is act like psychologically stressed westernized humans. So they're like the perfect study subjects on Earth. Um, but in the process, there's not a whole lot of them doing like non-human primate versions of meditating. They're jerks. They're aggressive. Half of baboon aggression is somebody is in a bad mood and takes it out on an innocent bystander. They're like hierarchical and male dominated. So like they're not nice guys. So I did not have a whole lot of mo moments of being able to sort of like feel at one with baboonness. They're they're perfect models for corporate stress. <laughs> That's amazing. I, it just sounds to me like they're basically like on their version of Twitter all day, like trolling each other. You know? Yes, yes. And so petty. They're like middle school girls bragging about who didn't get to go to which parties. You'll, you'll see like there's some low ranking female and she's just dug up some like tuber thing from the ground to eat and it takes about 30 seconds of digging there and there's this high-ranking female sitting nearby there's a hundred million of these tubers within a thousand yards of you because you're sitting out in this field and and the old lady alpha female comes up and makes this one stand up and walk away because she wants that one. So our low-ranking one sort of disgruntled goes and sit down <clears throat> 10 feet away to start digging for something else to eat. And 
the old lady comes and boots her out again. And they will spend the whole afternoon with her, like hassling her and moving her around the savannah there just because she can. And it's <laughs> like you watch this and it's infuriating. And like, you know, workers of the world unite or something, these low ranking baboons are getting just such grief. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, they look very familiar in lots of ways. That's amazing. They need baboon unions, some baboonians, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> so are they doing that? Are the high-ranking females doing that just to reinforce the hierarchy of like, I'm in this top position? Or, or what's the, the motivation for them to do that? Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. I mean, they're petty and childish and all of that sort of thing. You, you'll see there's a lot of species uh, that have a social structure jargon. They have a fusion fission structure, which is some of the time they break up into little small groups uh, for the afternoon, for the month, during the dry season, whatever. And then they all come back together in their big group and like wolves have this structure, hyenas have them. Um, so by, baboons have something resembling that. And what you see is when they all come back together again, um, everybody has to kind of check in to make sure the guy who was lower ranking than me this morning still is and that I'm still <laughs> subordinate. So they come back and like in the half hour or so before sunset, they just spend the entire time doing these petty stupid conspicuous displays of like rank differences just to make sure everybody remembers where things were at from this morning or so so you see like the low ranking guys just get such pointless grief at the end of the day just so nobody has gotten any ideas over the course of the afternoon so they do this every single day that's crazy now do any of the low ranking ones try and rebel yeah what you get is you know among it's 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 two very different hierarchical systems between the females and the males females spend their whole life in the same troop um so they are surrounded by mom and their sisters and their daughters and kids their whole life um so they inherit their rank from their mother. So a female doesn't really have a rank. Her lineage has a rank. Mm -hmm. She's from a high ranking lineage. She's from a utterly like down in the basement one or whatever. So an implication of that is you're stuck with your rank your entire life. It's this incredible feudal system. With the males around puberty, they get all itchy and bored and like out of their minds looking at these same stupid baboons they've been looking at their whole lives. They pick up and they go to some other troop 30 miles away and they show up as this anonymous little twerp who's dumped on by everybody and they spend the next four or five years packing on some muscle and some self-confidence and rising in the hierarchy until they hit their prime and they spend three or four years in like the top three or four ranking baboons until they do something stupid one day and get their arm broken by somebody and thus they start their five years of like declining into old age um so theirs is a very dynamic system 
Uh, mm. So how do you handle it? How do you pull off a revolution? You wait until the right guy has his back turned. You wait until the right guy is hobbled up with an injury. And this is a good time to form a coalition with somebody else low ranking. And the two of you try to take them on. And it's, it's totally Machiavellian stuff. What you tend to see is sort of the juvenile, like sub-adult adolescent males, they're the guys with the highest testosterone levels and like i can actually show that whoa do they rise to the top of the hierarchy no they're the idiots who go and form coalitions and challenge some guy they have no business going anywhere near and getting trounced they start the most fights they lose the most fights they're lucky if they make it through that period without a serious wound and finally, they learn a little bit of strategic self-control and they don't just like get involved in every exciting provocation out there. They learn some strategizing and that's when they begin to move up in the hierarchy. Huh. Wow, that was really fascinating. Really fascinating. Um, so I, I also want to, you know, I could talk to you about baboons all day, but I'd love to get into your new book. Um, this is really exciting. I'm curious, what was it about free will that made you uh, set your sights on it why why this book now well it's mainly because it's it's taken me about 50 years to get around to writing it i was i was about 13 when i decided there was no free will whatsoever and we were just biological machines um and that that had some interesting ripples of like <laughs> psychological <laughs> implications there and like all I've done since then is I've studied the neurobiology of what makes us who we are and with the baboons, the evolutionary biology of what makes us who we are. And, you know, just to like summarize my my insanely dogmatic out in left field stance, we are nothing more or less than the sum of biology that has brought us to this moment over which we had no control. And that biology's interaction with environment that has brought us to this moment over which we had no control. That's all there is. That's who we are. And that has some pretty major implications. So about five years ago, I wrote this book, which like I realized some of the notes for it I had started taking in college and it wound up being this insane 700 page long book uh, called Behave the biology of humans that are best and worst and it's essential song and dance was somebody does something wonderful or somebody appalling or something in between or whatever why did they do that and to get any sense of what's happening you need to understand which neurons did what a half second ago but you also have to understand what sensory stuff in the world around that person in the previous minute triggered those neurons to do that and what their hormone levels this morning had to do with how sensitive those neurons were to this or that stimulus and what was going on in the last six months, stimulation, trauma, loss, love, whatever, and adolescence and childhood when they were building their brains and what went on in their fetal lives, because some of what they'd be doing as 60 year olds would be influenced by fetal experience and their genes. And amazingly, what cultures their ancestors came up with and invented, because that was going to influence how their mother was mothering them from one minute of life. In other words, that was going to influence the type of brain they were constructing from their first minute of postnatal life. 
well, you got to take all of this into account. So like I'd give lectures about this and invariably like somebody afterward would say, wow, this seems to kind of call into question the very concept of us and our free will as a species to which I'd, I would politely not say like, yeah, you think <laughs> doesn't, doesn't this undermine an awful lot of this? And it struck me that, well, it was time to more explicitly, 700 pages later in this damn book, um, if somebody didn't realize what I was essentially saying in there is there's no free will. We're biological machines. Okay, I got to sit down and be less subtle about this and do a, a whole book that does nothing but that. So this is this new book coming out next month is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Um, and... Essentially, what I'm doing in the first half of the book is trying to take on every contemporary philosopher and biologist still arguing for free will and showing, okay, I'm trying not to seem too snarky here, but exactly, I mean, all of these, um, I'm not interested in people who are insisting we're nothing but quantum clouds of potential, like I'm only considering people who admit that things like we're made of atoms and like neurons and stuff like that, but try not to be too snarky how they can start with sort of like a 21st century acceptance of like the physical reality of our universe. And where, where does the tooth fairy come in where somehow they still pull free will out of this and trying to dissect all of that and show you don't get free will out of like emergent complexity. It doesn't work that way. You don't get free will out of quantum indeterminacy. You don't get free will out of chaotic systems. All of those are beyond cool, but that's not where you get free will from. You don't get free will out of any of our current understandings of how neurons work or biology works. Like there's no free will. Um, and then what I do in the second half of the book is what I've been personally making almost no headway with since I was 13, which is, oh, my God, what do you do if you actually believe there's no free will whatsoever? What would happen if everybody started believing this? Like, how are we supposed to function? What is society supposed to look like? And like I've been dealing very unsuccessfully since adolescence with trying to do that. And what I can say is with like all of my knowledge and my intellectual commitment to this picture of how we work as an organism and all of my emotional commitment to the only possible moral way we can go about life is recognizing we and no one else have free will. It's a complete myth, blah, blah, blah. I can function that way like maybe 1% of the time where somebody does something that pisses me off and I can actually get to why they're not a jerk, why mm -hmm. they had no control over who they became. And even more challenging, somebody says like something nice to me, like, wow, nice book or like nice shirt or whatever. And it takes me forever to work through how I did not earn a word of that either. <laughs> Yeah, I can do this like 1% of the time and 99% and of the time, this is how I think intellectually. This is not going to be an easy task to develop a world in which like blame 
and punishment, but also praise and reward make no sense whatsoever. It's like punishing an earthquake or praising a bunch of flowers that smell nice and where it makes no sense whatsoever to hating somebody because that makes as little sense as hating a, a hurricane or a virus. Um, and that's who we are. And thus we're entitled to nothing and we can't judge anyone. And whoa, what a totally cool humane planet that's going to be if we could all think that way. And again, I could do that 1% of the time. And that's been my like moral imperative, a goal since I was like 13. This is going to be hard to do. Yeah. Like, we're, we're not about to transform the world into a place where people recognize that the criminal justice system is gibberish. Meritocracy is gibberish. Hatred is biological gibberish. Yeah. Good luck with that. But, you know, that's what I'm trying to push a little bit in this book. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that, especially uh, at the ending, uh, that really comes into focus uh, during the end of the book. And, you know, what you're talking about here is is really very symmetrical to uh, a Buddhist point of view, you know? It's, yep. It, it's interesting, is that, but the delivery system of that <laughs> one is just a bit more digestible, but it's really getting to the same, the same end result. <laughs> Slightly more mania, New York accent. Um, like, on the next to last page of the book where I'm talking about like five years into writing this damn thing and sort of summaries at the end saying, you know, when you really think about it, the only possible moral place you can arrive at is you are entitled to nothing more in the way of consideration than any other human on earth. There's no human on earth who is entitled to less consideration about their well-being than you are all of that. And then I have a footnote where I say, I've been told this bears some resemblance to sort of the Buddhist concept of unselfing. And that's all I've got to say about this because I'm completely ignorant beyond that. Mm. Like, I know I'm kind of in the ballpark of that, but like, you know, I, I study neurons. I'm not enlightened. So I'm coming from a very different perspective, but you're absolutely right. It seems to be the same exact punchline. Uh, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Same punchline. I guess that one's just the Buddhist view is just wrapped in some compassion, you know, and some kind of overall kind of high level compassion. <laughs> Whereas this one is just sort of like, well, it's kind of on you to deal with, you know, the repercussions of this reality. <laughs> yes. All, all, all I can deal with is like neurotransmitters and baboons being jerks. That that's, that's like my level of enlightenment. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think as far as you mentioned, you know, meritocracy or judging people for their actions or other stuff becoming sort of irrelevant if you look at a causally determined view of will. Um, how do those things like, so let's, let's take just meritocracy, for example. If a person becomes aware that, quote unquote, like the harder they work, that the higher they'll typically advance in whatever their field is, whatever their goal is, that awareness becomes a motivating factor, which does translate to real action and real advancement, right? So how does the, like, the value of that meritocracy insubstantiated by the fact that there would be no free will, right? Which is great. Um, 
you you bring us to sort of jargon in the field is instrumental reinforcement. Somebody does something crummy, violent, whatever. Um, it's okay to punish them in a purely like you're giving them antibiotics sometimes, and sometimes you need to punish them. Um, if that is going to shape their behavior in a way that they are going to be less dangerous in the future, or maybe even if people watching them getting punished become less dangerous, that's, that's philosophically really thin ice there. Um, it's okay to do that to instrumentally shape their behavior in the future, but sure don't sit there and tell them you're doing this because they have a shitty soul. Right. And at the same time, in terms of meritocracies, it's perfectly fine to praise somebody if that's going to make them study harder to be a good neurosurgeon, but certainly don't tell them this is because they have a wonderful soul. Mm -hmm. It's just instrumental. And in a sense, this taps into, like you tell people we have no free will and like none of this makes any sense and punishment and reward. And they say, oh, great. Are you just going to have criminals running around? on the street murderers and all of that no absolutely not if a car has its brakes that are not working it's incredibly dangerous you put it in a garage you don't let the car be driven but you don't give it lectures about the nature of its soul and like it's it's soiled sense of goodness um you just make sure nobody can be hurt by it and in the same way at the criminal justice end if somebody is dangerous and you can't cure it, you make sure they can no longer hurt somebody in that way, but you don't do a smidgen more than that because they don't deserve a smidgen more than that. And in the exact same way, just as you can't have a, a society with dangerous people running around, with the meritocracy end, you want a society where like, the more competent people are doing brain surgery than the less competent ones. Um, you know, this is a world where dangerous cars shouldn't be driven on the street and where people with better like motoric dexterity are trying to take out your brain tumor. Um, so you need to have like that should make a difference. But you don't tell this person that this neurosurgeon that they earned this and that they earned more respect than a garbage collector and that they're entitled to feeling like they're a better person or feeling like they should get 10 times the salary of anyone else or like, yeah, we still need to have the world protected from dangerous people and run by competent people, but sure don't sit there and tell anybody that they had anything to do with arriving at who they were. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying, I, I guess. And, um, that makes me think like as far as my, the notion of the inspiration that one becoming aware of like the said meritocracy would feel is that then in the no free will view what would be responsible for that would be that they already had the predisposed you know neural pathways and environmental experience which then would have been activated by said the idea the essence of inspiration which then enabled them to do x y and z more effectively than they would have otherwise yeah, which is which is part of what we're up against here. I mean, you you sit there, you you go over to somebody's like house for dinner, and they've like made something amazing, and the seasoning is great, and you say, "Oh my God, the spices and the, this for me," and they're not going to say it's because I have this array of 
olfactory receptor genotypes so that I'm more attuned to the difference between like, you know, cardamom or whatever. They're going to say, oh, thanks. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time like <laughs> learning how to cook. And they're not going to say, I spent a lot of time learning how to cook because I'm economically privileged. And they're right. not going to say, I spent a lot of time learning how to cook because I developed with enough of a frontal cortex that I had the self-discipline to do gratification. They're going to say, yeah, thanks. You know, I worked really hard at this. Um, no, it's really hard to think that way yet. You know, I, I wound up with a pretty comfortable, privileged life and I didn't have a damn thing to do with it. And it's sheer random luck. And that's the case with any of us but like where do you get your motivation from then one of the weird things we do as a species is like it, it could be summarized in this whole phrase the fact that we as a species no one's looking at us and we don't steal something in most cases mm -hmm. we're not going to get any credit at all for doing something wonderful because no one's looking at us yet we may do something wonderful and like this bizarre thing that defines us as a species which no other one comes within light years of is we can sit there and say something like how am i going to live with myself if i did that or if i didn't do that how am i going to sleep at night this whole bizarre world of this like weirdo thing we invented about 20,000 years ago, moral systems, and we internalize them. And we have a self-perception of who we are. I'm the best like drive-by shooter in all of downtown <laughs> Chicago, or I'm the best do random acts of kindness person out there. We internalize this stuff and then we run internally after that. And and understanding how we arrive at those points is really important. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's fascinating. It's like it's one of the most interesting and I think I think it might work in our advantage, perhaps, but one of the most interesting mirages that the human mind slash ego plays on itself is the one of specialness. Yeah. Yes. Right? where everyone yes. believes that they're special. And then it doesn't take a genius to figure out, well, if everyone thinks that they're special, <laughs> you know, then that means that nobody is special. <laughs> it can't work that way. Everybody yeah. can't be above average. Yeah, th this, this pull towards exceptionalism, um, of course, it's got the possibility of having this really ironic converse thing where what you decide is like, you're going to do more random acts of kindness than anybody out there. And like, everybody's going to recognize you for that. Or like countries recognize the incredible dangers of nationalism and all the wars that that version of exceptionalism brings you to. And instead, if you don't watch it, you're going to wind up having countries going to war with each other over who takes better care over their elderly citizens right. or who's who's got the better infant mortality rates or or that no one says this is going to be easy but this this unselfing like you know can you unself better than any other kid on the block and should that get you like the date with a high school cheerleader or quarterback this this is a problematic world we're trying to pull this all off in 
Yeah, nothing is more attractive than being like, hey, how you doing? Uh, my name is Corey. I'm a wave of awareness trapped inside of a meat space suit uh, yes. and, uh, based on millions of years of random chance. Yes, uh, exactly. What or, do you think? or the flip version of it, if somebody comes in and says, you know, today driving into work, I everyone who tried to merge in front of me, I just let them merge in because i was just trying to be a nice guy are you going to tell me there's no such thing as pure altruism and the response is yeah until you had to tell me about yeah, it exactly <laughs> yeah yeah we're 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 a complicated <laughs> tragic species yeah absolutely um so i guess what i'm you know hearing from you is the the end like goal or like where this idea executes is getting everyone let's say just everyone in the world understands that we don't have free will that we are riding this long wave of causality which i to me it makes total sense i have also thought that way for years um i've also tried to then think what do i do with this you know and uh, just like you mentioned and and for me i think it's helped me achieve some of the goals which you said you know we should be aiming for which are being less self-obsessed you know less selfish yeah less judgmental and just accepting that like yeah you know all of these the the things about me that seem special are um i'm, I'm not really i'm not it's not it's interesting to try and put words to it it's not that you're not responsible for them you know what I mean? Because they emerged out of you, but you didn't do anything special to really be able to help those things emerge, I guess. Exactly. For, for better or worse, um, which like brings us back to like, oh my God, how are we supposed to think this way? And I can't do it 99% of the time. This is hopeless. Oh my God, what are you talking? We've done it in the past. We've done it over and over and over again. People used to think that hailstorms were caused by witches and go and burn them. Oh, that's not how it works. People used to think up until like maybe 20, 30 years ago, if you went to the best psychiatrist on earth, people used to think that schizophrenia was caused by mothers with crappy psychoanalytic, psychodynamic Freudian bile in them where they unconsciously hated their child and made them schizophrenic. Hundreds of thousands of mothers went to their graves being told it was their fault. That, And then we figured out, oh, no, 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 it's a neurogenetic disorder. We figured out epilepsy is not demonic possession. Someone who has a seizure and loses control of a car is not evil. They need to go a certain number of months without another seizure and be good on their meds before you can give them their license back. Over and over, we've been able to subtract responsibility out of perceiving stuff in the world. And not only hasn't the roof caved in, it's become a much more humane planet. It's like really good. We don't burn people at the stake anymore if they've had the like horrible luck of having like a mutation in a potassium channel and they have seizures. All this does is make the world more humane. And if you're sitting there feeling bummed out, oh, no free will. So I really don't earn my like prestige for having my corner office in my corporation. What a bummer. And whoa, even I'm reflective. So I'm going to fall into existential despair now at the lack of. Per if that's you, 
by definition, you're one of the lucky ones. Because for most people, what there's no free will is going to mean is not you shouldn't get credit for all the things you've achieved. You shouldn't be blamed for all the ways in which you were screwed by the time you were like a third trimester fetus. Um, all that can be is liberating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, that person in the corner office, I would say, you hey, welcome to the party, man. Glad that you, you got here and you're thinking about this stuff now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, here, here's like just one like factoid to file away. 25% of the men on death row, death row in this country have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. And when that happens to you, you don't have a lousy soul. You're like a car whose brakes don't work. You can't regulate your behavior. You have no impulse control. Go and tell me about free will, where this is a guy who had his frontal cortex destroyed in a car accident when he was nine, and he did his first murder at 11 without any prior history of it. Like, don't tell me, oh, no free will. What an, what an incredibly depressing concept. Tell that to somebody who's homeless because they've been screwed over. This is not a depressing insight. This is a liberating one. This is tell it to the kid with dyslexia who everybody thinks they're just lazy and unmotivated. And like, this is a good thing. It's not yeah. going to be easy, but this is like a good thing to aim for. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, like you were saying, whenever someone is in their life feeling like they're struggling and they can't, you know, go further and kind of get to a place where they would feel happier in the same way that someone becoming aware of a meritocracy would help them feel inspired to do better. This is liberating in that way because they're like, Hey, no, this isn't, this is all, you know, the, as you said, this is the tornado effect, destroying everything, you know, the circumstances of your life have gotten to this spot, not because of anything that you did per se, but just because of the, you know, the cards that you were dealt. And if a person can realize that and then let go of the, self-hatred the self-limiting thoughts the self-blame then they can be elevated and might have the self-confidence and the belief to then go actually live a happier life and to kind of get closer to their goals and whatever it is that they want to be doing exactly because embedded in your like perception of that is believing there's no free will does not does not does not mean nothing can change um, right. We're simply not the, the captains of our own fates when things change, but things change dramatically and an insight that like you did not arrive at where you are because you're unmotivated or rotten or unkind. All that could do is foster this process of change. Um, a lack of free will is not like Puritan fatalistic predeterminism. We change enormously. And all that happens is when you learn the biology of what makes us who we are and how we're just biological machines, you see even more how we change, how we can be changed. Go out and like help people do that for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious your take on on this one possible negative outcome or how to work with this. So say that you have an average fella and he then understands that uh, he has no free will. 
what if that were then, or do you think there's a chance that a person could then look at that as an excuse, kind of a trap door to then lean into the more negative side of their nature? Because now they say like, well, I'm not to blame, so I'm going to be kind of deceitful and dishonest and whatever. Uh, what do you think about that? And and how would is a good way to go about keeping that from, from happening in people? Yeah, which is such an irresistible prospect. Oh my God. A, if you convince people that they're not responsible for their actions, um, they're just going to run amok, which is sort of like the, the, the troll cousin of if you stop believing in God and thus there's no one who is going to judge you, you're just going to run amok. And what you see is when you first prompt people to stop believing there's like a, a ultimate judgment day that comes, or if you stop uh, prompt people to stop believing in free will, they become less ethical. They, in actual lab experiments, they tend to cheat more at economic games. But when you get somebody who has all on their own spent a long time thinking through this stuff and deciding there is no God or deciding there is no free will, what the studies show is they are absolutely exactly as ethical as people who are deeply religious or as people who have a deep sense of agency and belief in free will. How come? Not because one of those conclusions biases you towards more morality than the other conclusion, because you get exactly the same. The studies show precisely this. It's because you sat there and for a long time you've thought about it. And that's the predictor. Whether your conclusion is like this is a world without purpose and an indifferent universe and all of that. And what do I make of that? Um, or if you thought about God is watching me every moment or the gods are watching me, what you see is people arrive at the same level of ethical behavior. It's the people in between who don't measure up to it. What does in between look like? The people, you know, for whom being religious is going to church once a year because it's good for the kids or the people who are atheists, not because they have fought through this issue and stirm and drong and all, because just whatever, apatheists, <laughs> those are the people in between where a lessening of a psychological sense of responsibility or culpability makes you less ethical. Right. Spend all your time thinking about these big issues and study after study shows whatever conclusion you reach like you've done the hard work and you're much more likely than chance to come out the other end being a very ethical person. Well, that really tracks to the global view of, of there not being any free will, because really what it's saying is that on either, either end of the spectrum, your natural imprinted traits will just unfold one way or another, regardless of which software you're loading on them. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And like, as a great example of that, like after World War II, all these sociologists tried to study not just like, where did the Nazis come from? How could that have happened? But where did the people who risked their lives to shelter refugees and like that, that whole world of incredible heroism. And there was this whole cottage industry in the 50s of trying to understand who these people were. 
And what you saw was they were disproportionately likely to be highly religious or highly secular progressives. Mm. All that means is they've thought about what does this all mean for a long time, and those were the predictors. Not did they have a history of pro-social behavior, did they have a high rate of like ritualistic orthodox religiosity, did they like were they highly educated, were they better off, were they poor and more empathic? None of those came through highly religious or highly irreligious and where they saw that stance as sort of a moral imperative. Yeah. That's, that's the answer. That makes sense because really both of those things point to a greater level of self-awareness and self-examination. Yeah. And thus along the way, by definition, a greater understanding of where other people came from. Right. Right. Yeah. Again, another Buddhist view of, you know, we're really looking at equanimity. You know, it's like whenever you can see yourself and other people, you know, that's what immediately springs compassion. You know, it's just understanding perspective wise that like, oh, right. Everyone else is experiencing the same, you know, fears and hopes and worries and desire to be seen and loved and all those things. And being able to kind of pop yourself out of that first player point of view and realize that we're all just in the exact same boat together makes you understand that other people are truly human just as you are. Yeah. And as any of those folks who've spent decades like meditating, no, or studying in neuroscience, it, it doesn't come easy. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, well, Robert, thank you so much for hanging out and sharing all of your experiences and your your knowledge and your stories. It's really great. And I, I think that you really touched on a lot of really valuable things that will help people understand, you know, the lack of free will from a positive place, as opposed to, you know, it can have kind of a stink of something uh, threatening to people, on, of course. And uh, yeah, just thank you for articulating everything so beautifully and for us spending the time today. Well, thanks for having me on. And it's a real pleasure seeing how uh, the two of us could come from completely different galaxies and wind up with some pretty similar moral conclusions. So that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Take care.